Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 7. 2 Timothy 1 7 for our message from the Word of God this morning. 2 Timothy 1 7 will be found on page 1279 in the church Bible. Today's date is July 2nd, 2023. Today's text will begin in 2 Timothy 1.7 and go on down through verse 12. And the title of this morning's message is Never fear, grace is here. Never fear, grace is here. And we begin with the story of a man who told his friend one day, I have a fear of elevators, but I'm taking steps to get over it. His friend replied, Funny you should say that. I used to have a fear of speed bumps, but I'm slowly getting over it. Yeah, okay. Well, (laughs) speaking of fears and of getting over your fears, the Apostle Paul had a co-worker named Timothy who must have been afraid of something or Paul wouldn't have had to tell him what he told him in 2 Timothy 1.7 where the apostle wrote young Pastor Timothy these words. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. Now, it seems obvious to me from those words that Timothy was afraid of something. So we have to begin this morning by asking what it might have been. And to answer that question, it helps to remember that Paul was in a Roman prison as he was writing this epistle. As he tells us in your first cross-reference in 2 Timothy 2.9, where he says, I suffer trouble even under bonds. And he meant the bonds of prison. And we also know that Paul was about to be executed by the emperor of Rome. Because he ends this epistle by saying in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And we know that he meant that he was about to depart life itself. Because he told the Philippians in Philippians 1.23 to depart and be with Christ, 
is far better. And I'm sure you'd agree that it's not only far better than sitting in prison, (laughs) it was also far better than sitting on the emperor's throne. But now to get back to Timothy's fear, we know that Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. So I think that he was afraid that he'd be the next one to be arrested and executed. So you would think that Paul would just tell him not to be afraid to suffer for the Lord. Instead, in verse 7 there, he says that God hath not given us the spirit of fear. So what's the spirit of fear? (laughs) And why would Paul have to tell Timothy that God hadn't given him the spirit of fear? Well, the answer to that is, in the Old Testament portion of your Bibles, God gave the Jews the spirit of fear when he gave them the law of Moses. Because remember, In the law, God told the Jews what to do and then he threatened to punish them if they didn't do it. So they lived in fear of that punishment. But what did Paul tell the Romans in your next reference in Romans 6.14? You're not under the law, but under grace. And because of that, He also told the Romans in Romans 8.15, ye have not received the spirit of fear. So, the spirit of fear must have been the spirit of fear that the Jews had under the law. But listen, it's a fear that God doesn't give us because we're not under the law, we're under grace. And Timothy knew that too, of course. But Paul Paul had to remind him of that here because something had happened that I think was making Timothy begin to wonder about it. It had to do with the reason Paul was arrested and we saw the reason Paul was arrested when we were studying the book of Acts. We saw back in Acts 21 that Paul was about to offer an animal sacrifice and God showed that he didn't want Paul to offer that sacrifice by allowing a riot to break out to stop him. And it was that riot that led to his arrest. So it looked to Timothy like God was punishing Paul for trying to offer that sacrifice by letting him be imprisoned. Now, we saw why Paul wanted to offer that sacrifice. It was to please unsaved Jews, to get them to listen to him when he told them about Christ. 
So we know that his motive was good. He, he was just taking things too far. But here's the thing. Timothy knew himself well enough to know that he might take things too far in his service for the Lord. Because he was just as zealous as Paul. And that was what was making him afraid. That God would let him be arrested next. But Paul knew that Timothy was zealous too. So how could Paul tell Timothy that he didn't have to be afraid that God would punish him for taking things too far. Well, the answer is that it only looked like God was punishing Paul for offering that sacrifice, or wanting to offer it anyway. The real reason God let that riot break out was just to stop him from offering it, and to save his life from that mob of angry Jews, unsaved Jews, who were trying to kill him. But listen now. The reason God allowed him to be arrested and imprisoned was because he knew it would lead to reaching the world for Jesus Christ. At least that's what Paul told the Philippians in your next reference in Philippians 1, 12 and 13. He says, I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me, this business of being in prison, have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all of the palace and in all other places. So, how did that work out? <laughs> well, by this time, the Apostle Paul was a pretty famous guy. And that made him what we would call a high-profile prisoner. And that meant he wasn't in prison in your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill prison. <laughs> they had him locked up in the prison below Caesar's palace. And when the people in the palace heard that a famous prisoner like Paul was down there, they went down to meet him. And when they did, some of them got saved, as we see when Paul closed the letter to the Philippians by saying in Philippians 4.22, All the saints salute you. Chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. There were saints of God in the household of the emperor of the Roman Empire. <laughs> and listen, those members of the royal family were people of influence the way members of royal families always are people of influence back when I used to bother to read the news I noticed that you couldn't open your home page without seeing headlines about what Prince Harry or Princess Kate were up to lately right and whenever they did something, it immediately became 
acceptable behavior. And it even became chic and popular. So when some of Caesar's family got saved, suddenly getting saved was in vogue, as they used to say. <laughs> and that influence made it so people in all other places got saved, Paul says. And folks, that is why God let Paul get arrested. Not to punish him. Of course, getting people saved in all other places took a considerable amount of time. And that's why God left Paul in prison instead of breaking him out of prison like he did back in Acts 16. He left Paul in prison until the gospel had permeated the known world, folks. And that explains why Paul calls himself, what he calls himself in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for trying to offer a sacrifice. Is that what it's... No! I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you guys, for you Gentiles. He doesn't say he was the prisoner of Christ because God was punishing him for trying to offer that sacrifice. He says he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the Gentiles. Christ was allowing him to remain there till all the Gentiles heard. And let me tell you, it was a lonely business because Paul, at the end of this epistle in your next reference in 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 and 17 said, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that, the reason he did this, by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. Now the beginning of that verse is talking about how the first time Paul was called on to answer the, the trumped up charges that were leveled against him, all the saints forsook him because they were afraid they'd be arrested next if they didn't forsake him. But God stood by Paul in prison so that all the Gentiles could hear. And that explains what Paul went on to tell the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, 1 and 13. He said, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles, desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul's tribulations in prison were their glory because he was suffering imprisonment for them. So he tells them not to faint like Timothy was doing over it. Do you know one of the reasons, one of the definitions, I should say, of the word faint is to be timid, like Timothy. 
I looked it up in the dictionary and they gave, they, they gave an old quote that I guess I've heard, maybe you've heard it. Uh, a faint heart never wins a fair lady. Have you ever heard that? Do you fair ladies agree? Does... <laughs> well, the bottom line is evidently the Ephesians were being as faint and afraid of being arrested as Timothy was. And the way that Paul calmed their fears was by assuring them that he wasn't in prison because God was punishing him. It was for their glory as Gentiles. But Paul knew Timothy well enough to know that he didn't just want to avoid going to prison because he was afraid God would be punishing him going to prison. He knew Timothy well enough to know that Timothy wouldn't want to go to prison for any reason. <laughs> we saw in our story that he was a bit of a mama's boy, a tearful mama's boy, who was raised in the scriptures to be a godly man who never thought he'd end up behind bars. And if you want to talk about timid, he was afraid of the Corinthians we saw in our first study, and they were saved. So you could imagine how afraid he was of going to prison and getting locked up with a bunch of unsaved criminal thugs. So, after Paul tells Timothy he didn't have to have the spirit of fear that God would punish him and put him in prison, Paul went on to tell him that God has given us the spirit of power, a spirit that would help him overcome the fear of going to prison for any reason. And he meant the power of God's grace. The kind of power it talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, where God told Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that, there's that word, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in distresses like prison for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Folks, that's the spirit of power that, that Paul was telling Timothy that God has given us. The power of knowing that even if Timothy got locked up in the slammer, that God could use him more as a prisoner than he could as a free man. Like he was using Paul more as a prisoner than as a free man. You see, grace gives us the power of knowing that the things that make us weak in our lives are things that make God strong in our lives. And that was good news for Timothy. Because folks, all Timothy cared about was making God strong in his life. Of course, it's bad news for you if all you care about is having to, 
to suffer distresses in life. But I can tell you, the only way to be happy in a dispensation where God is not shielding us from distresses is to learn to care more about God's strength than your strength. If you want to learn how to do what Paul told the Corinthians there and take pleasure in distresses, that's the only way to do it. It's one of the secrets of life. Secrets of the Christian life, anyway. But, if the spirit of the power of grace isn't enough to make you unafraid of distresses in your life, verse 7 says God has also given us the spirit of love. So what's the spirit of love? Well, I think Paul tells us in your next reference in Romans 5, 2-8. He says we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and we glory in tribulations. Well, isn't that what we've been talking about? How to glory in tribulations and distresses? Knowing that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For Christ died for us. Paul says that we can glory in tribulations if we know that the love of God isn't shed abroad in our lives by delivering us from distresses. It was shed abroad in our hearts when Christ saved us by His death on the cross. Folks, think it through. If you think God shows His love in your life, what are you going to do when distresses come into your life? You're going to think God doesn't love you. Right? But if you know God showed His love at the cross, You're going to think He loves you beyond measure. And that's what He wants you to think. That's what He wants you to know. And it's that love that motivates us to serve the Lord, as Paul told the Corinthians in your next reference. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he said, The love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if He died for all, that they which live eternally, get eternal life because of his death for all, should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I know you know this, but we have to pound it home. Under grace, we're not motivated to serve the Lord out of fear of what God will do to you if you don't serve Him. We're motivated to serve Him out of love alone. If Christ died for you, shouldn't you live for Him? But now, there in verse 7, what's that spirit of a sound mind that Paul also says... God has given us. Well, the way to get a sound mind, folks, is to fill it with something that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 1.13. Sound words! <laughs> sound words which you heard of me! 
In the dispensation of grace, a sound mind is a mind that is filled with the sound words that we hear from Paul and his epistles. Now, don't get me wrong. There were sound words in the law of Moses too. But those sound words will make you think God's punishing you every time something bad happens to you if you apply those words to you, right? The sound words of grace make you realize that instead the power of Christ is resting on you when bad things happen to you. Well, now that Paul's reminded Timothy of all that, there's there's something he says that Timothy should therefore do in verse 8, the next verse in our text. He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now, the testimony of our Lord used to be the law of Moses. As you can tell when Moses told the Jews in your next reference, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day. All the words of this law. But listen, God's testimony today is grace. That's what Paul says in your next reference in Acts 20.24. But none of these things move me. None of these distresses that you're talking about move me. Neither count I my life dear to myself so that I might testify the gospel of the grace of God. So grace is the testimony of our Lord today that Paul is talking about. But why would Paul have to tell Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of God's grace? Well, don't forget, Timothy was thinking that God was punishing Paul for going too far in his service for the Lord. And if the testimony of grace says that God doesn't punish us, can you see why Timothy would be ashamed of a message that said God won't punish us and then punish Paul? I mean, I'd be ashamed of a message that said God wouldn't do something and then God went ahead and did it. But now that Paul's reminded Timothy that he's not being punished, Timothy knows he doesn't have to be ashamed of the testimony of grace, and he doesn't have to be ashamed of Paul. Hey folks, there's no shame in being in prison if you're in prison for a good reason like Paul was, so the Gentiles could hear the gospel. Now the Jews were ashamed under the law when, when God punished them because they meant they did something wrong. As you see in Ezra 9, 6 and 7, Ezra prayed and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and, and blush to lift up my face to thee in prayer. Why? For our iniquities are increased and 
for our iniquities, we've been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to captivity. When Ezra wrote those words, the Jews were in captivity, you know, imprisonment in Babylon because they sinned. So they were right to be ashamed. When they got there, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 3.25, We lie down in our shame, for we have sinned against the Lord. But there was no reason for Paul to be ashamed in prison, and there was no reason for Timothy to be ashamed of him either. And there's no reason for you to be ashamed when distresses come your way because you know, at least you should know. I, I used to hear from people at BBS all the time who needed to be constantly reminded, and I'm talking about solid grace believers. You know that God's not punishing you either. No matter how many TV preachers want to try and make you think He is. You know, years ago, maybe you remember this in the news, there was a woman in the news who divorced her husband because she said he was molesting her kids. But she couldn't prove it. So the court ordered joint custody. So she hid her children and refused to let her husband see them or even know where they were at. Well, since the law was on his side, the husband took her to court. And the judge put her in jail and said, you can stay there until you tell your husband where your kids are at so he can see them. Well, she refused. And she chose to remain in prison until her kids were 18 years of of age and her husband had no more legal right to see him. Now, there was certainly no shame in being jailed for that reason. In fact, there was honor in being jailed for her children. And there was honor in Paul being jailed for the Gentiles. In God's eyes, anyway. And because there was no shame in suffering for Gentiles, Paul tells Timothy there in verse 8 that he shouldn't be ashamed to suffer for them either. He should be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. And then Paul adds, according to the power of God. According to that power that grace gives us when we remember that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That ought to give us more power than the Energizer Bunny, folks. That ought to give us more power than Tim the Toolman Taylor. (laughs) Remember Tim. More power. Well, in our next verse, Paul tells Timothy that the reason he should partake of the afflictions of the gospel is because the gospel is what God used to save us. At the end of verse 8, he says, he talks about God who hath saved us in verse 9 and called us 
with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Folks, you were saved by believing the gospel of Christ died for us. And if that doesn't make you want to suffer for the one who suffered for you on the cross, I don't know what to tell you. Because God doesn't have a plan B when it comes to constraining us to serve Him. And as He doesn't look down and say, love's not constraining Pastor Rick to serve me. So I guess I'll just have to let him get arrested. No! Christ died for us is our only motivation to serve God. And Paul calls it a holy calling. Now the Jews, they had a holy calling under the law, but their calling was according to their works. If their works were good, God made sure they stayed out of captivity. So they served Him out of fear of captivity. But that is not serving God according to that verse there in verse 9 where it's not serving God according to His purpose and grace. That's serving God according to His purpose in the law. Our calling is not according to our works. Our works can be good and we can still end up in prison. That's serving God according to His purpose and grace. Listen, plenty of Christians have been wrongfully imprisoned, right? Alright, the, the next reason Paul reminds Timothy that God's person... Uh, the next thing I should say that Paul reminds Timothy about God's purpose and grace is that it was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now follow me here, because the reason he tells Timothy that is well, it's something that he talked about in Ephesians 3, verses 8 to 11. In Ephesians 3, 8 to 11, it says, Unto me, Paul says, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God to the intent that now under the principalities and powers the angels in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to that eternal purpose we're talking about which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that passage has a lot to say, but part of what Paul is saying there is that it was God's eternal purpose that those angelic principalities and powers should learn to serve God out of love and not out of fear. You say, well, why would you think that? <laughs> why would the angels need to learn to serve God out of love? And not out of fear. Well, you know the story. When Lucifer rebelled against God, 
and convinced a lot of other angels to rebel with him. The thing that stopped the rest of the angels from rebelling was their fear of something that the Lord talked about in Matthew 25, 41. Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Ray was talking about that last Sunday in Sunday school. How God did not prepare hell for men after the first man sinned. It says He prepared it for the angels after they sinned. And ever after that, the angels served God out of fear of that eternal fire and not out of love. And God couldn't teach them how to serve out of love by using the Jews because they served God out of love. So before the world began, He purposed that we would serve Him out of love and teach the angels how. And teach them a whole lot of other things under grace too. Of course, God kept that that plan a secret until He manifested it to Paul on Damascus Road. At least that's what Paul says in the next verse back in your Bible of our text in verse 10. Let's begin, let me read the end of verse 9 again there to get the flow of verse 10. See where Paul talks about God's purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Now don't get confused there. That appearing, that's not talking about the appearing of our Savior when He was born in Bethlehem and walked around here on earth for 33 years. That appearing didn't make manifest God's purpose and grace for the Gentiles that was given us before the world began. It's talking about when He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Do you remember what Ananias said to Paul in your next reference in Acts 9.17? Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that what? Appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest. He's the one that sent me. When Saul was on the way to Damascus there, the Lord made an appearance to him and told him in your next reference, Acts 26.16, I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness of the things you see and of those things in the which I will appear to thee. That's the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ that began to make known God's purpose of grace for us Gentiles. But now, if the Lord abolished death there, as it says in verse 10, how come Paul was put to death shortly after writing those words? Well, look up that word abolish and you'll see that one of the def- at least in that context, the definition is to make something null 
and void. After the Emancipation Proclamation abolished slavery, our nation's slaves were free. But only on paper. On the paper written in the Emancipation Declaration. We still had to fight a bloody civil war for them to be free in reality, right? And the Lord abolished death in the same way. His death on the cross abolished death on paper. The paper is found in Paul's epistles. But listen, <laughs> if you've ever lost a loved one to death, you know there's, there's still a battle that has to be fought to do away with death in reality. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, no, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. 24 to 26. In describing future events, he says, Then cometh the end when he shall put all enemies under his feet in a battle. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death's already abolished, folk, but it won't be destroyed until after the battle of Gog and Magog is fought. And then, as Revelation 20.14 says, that's when death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That's when death is done away with in reality. Now, verse 10 also says that the Lord's appearance to Paul on Damascus Road brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And you probably think, well, wait a minute. Didn't the Lord bring life in immortality to light when he appeared to the twelve apostles and gave them a gospel? Well, yeah. (laughs) But that appearance brought life and immortality to light for the Jews who were under the kingdom gospel, right? We know that verse 10 is talking about bringing life and immortality to light for Gentiles because verse 10 ends by talking about the gospel and then verse 11 says, the gospel whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Folks, the reason that life and immortality were brought to light through Paul's gospel is that his gospel is the one that broke the news how Christ died for Gentile sins. That's why Paul told Timothy in uh, back in his first epistle, in your next reference there, in 1 Timothy 2, 5-7, Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom not just for the Jews, as was testified when the Lord was here, but for all. But that was something that was testified in due time when Paul came along. Whereunto I am ordained a teacher of the Gentiles. You see the argument? Life and immortality couldn't be brought to light for Gentiles until Paul also brought to light how Christ paid for Gentile life and immortality. That makes sense? And it was for the cause of bringing us Gentiles uh, life and immortality that Paul was sitting in prison 
according to what he says in the last verse of our text there in verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul says that he wasn't ashamed to be in prison for the Gentiles because he knew who he believed. If he had believed Moses, he would be ashamed because Moses would would be telling him, you're in prison because you ticked God off with that sacrifice thing. But folks, he hadn't believed Moses. He believed the Lord when he said he was in prison for the Gentiles. And that last verse of our text says that believing on Christ is what persuaded Paul that Christ could could keep something that Paul had committed to him. So, what was that? What had Paul committed to the Lord? You know, we get a clue in your next reference, because Peter uses those same words when he said in 1 Peter 4.19, Let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him. Peter's readers, they were suffering according to the will of God just like Paul was. So he told them to commit the keeping of their souls to the Lord. And I think that's what Paul committed to the Lord as well. His very eternal soul. So now, there was a difference in how the Lord kept the souls of Peter's readers and how he kept Paul's soul. Look at the the expanded version of 1 Peter 4.19 where Peter says, let them commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Peter was writing to, to Jewish believers under the law So he had to tell those believers to commit the keeping of their souls to the Lord in well-doing. In other words, in good works, folks. That's well-doing. Jews had to do good works to get saved, and we know they had to keep doing them because that's what the Lord told the Jews in John 8.31. He said, if ye continue in my word, then... Are ye my disciples indeed? But you know what? The Jesus who said that was not the Jesus uh, that Paul believed. He was what 2 Corinthians 11 4 calls another Jesus. The Jesus of the kingdom program who said you had to continue in his word to be his disciples. If Paul had believed that Jesus, He couldn't be persuaded that the Lord would keep his soul in well-doing because he hadn't been doing very well, had he? He'd been trying to offer a sacrifice. And listen, he could be sure that the Jesus that he believed could keep his soul, because he told the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, 
He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Christ began the good work of salvation in us, folks. And he will continue to perform it until the day of Christ. In that, in that context, that's the rapture. And here in verse 12, Paul says that he committed the keeping of his soul to the Lord against that day of the rapture. Now, we don't talk that way anymore, but that word against there in that context means in preparation for that day. Look at Esther 3, 13 and 14. You remember when Haman convinced the king to kill all the Jews? <laughs> Letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all the Jews. Upon the 13th day of the 12th month. And the copy of that writing was published to all the king's people that they should be ready against that day. The king ordered his people to kill all the Jews on a certain day, and then he sent out posts to tell them to be prepared to kill them on that day. And you provide, you, you apply that meaning here, and it's saying Paul committed the keeping of his soul to the Lord to be prepared for the Lord for the day when the Lord was come to take only believers to heaven. If you are prepared against that day, say amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have not been given a spirit We thank you for the power you've given us, the power of grace. And we thank you for the love that motivates us to share that grace with other people. May we heed Paul's admonition here and not be ashamed to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel that saved us. Lay it on our hearts, I pray in the Savior's name. Amen. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love and all fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above our love. There you go. What you do? Oh, you have communion. Should have said it afterward. Let's meet on down for the Lord's Supper. I'd like to invite you to 
Open your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians and the 11th chapter. In everybody's Bible, it's right after the book of Romans, right? And right before 2 Corinthians and Galatians, but in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1222. This is the passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul reminds us of what we've been talking about this morning, that everything in the Word of God is centered in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we spend the time expounding the Scriptures, going over what God says word by word, phrase by phrase, and, and plumbing the depths of a book that we're never going to finish plumbing the depths of, even in eternity. As we do all that, God never wants us to forget the cross. He never wants us to forget the simplicity of the gospel of Christ died for our sins. So he gave us something to do to remind us, a little poke in the ribs, a friendly poke in the ribs. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians 11.23 where Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus on the very same night in which he was betrayed by Judas, took bread. And you wouldn't think he'd have much to be thankful for once he found out he was, well, he knew already what Judas was up to. And yet, verse 24 says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body. It represents my physical body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, it hadn't been broken yet, but he had to say it before the cross because, well, you can't say things when you're hanging on the cross very easily. After the same manner also, he took the cup which he had, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament. In my blood, this do ye as often as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember me, and you show the Lord's death to others until he come. And I'm going to ask the brethren if they'd pass the reminder of the Lord's body at this time, and I'm going to remind you that at Faith Bible Church, during the passing of the elements, we always invite you to share a word of testimony or share something on your hearts that you'd like to share with your church family. Yes, Sarianne. Um, I'm reading a lot of books about the Holocaust, and a friend of mine said that she felt that the Jews were being, like the Holocaust was due to the Jews' history, and and it was like a a punishment, and I didn't really agree with that, but I wasn't sure. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Like why the Lord? I mean, I know we're all we're we're all subject to evil. And yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's the dispensation of grace, and even though the people of Israel have fallen out of favor with God, uh, the Holocaust is just another example of man's historic hatred of Israel ever since Abraham instituted the nation. So, no, that's something you could actually use to share the depths of the grace of God. That even something as horrific as that is not God's punishing them for crucifying Christ. I don't want to get preachy here, but... Uh, you may have heard me talk about in the past how one of the f- founders of Protestantism, Martin Luther, was anti-Semitic. He, he, he hated Jews. He called them Christ killers. And that's a historic Christian view that went on way after him. And I've seen him quoted... I've seen Martin Luther quoted on atheist websites to say, well, yeah, this is what Christian... No, that's not what Christianity believes. That's not what Christianity teaches. Dave used to say that in Romans 11, Paul calls the people of Israel beloved enemies. They're enemies of the gospel, but they're beloved for the Father's sake. Our Father, we thank you for this element which reminds us of the body of your Son and and the incredible grace that was paid for when he offered it as a sacrifice to you. And we thank you for this reminder of it, and we thank you in his name. Amen.